as, as we've already talked about, Pastor Mark is out of town, and so I'm substituting today. If you haven't heard Pastor Mark, I would encourage you to come back and, and be with us when he is speaking. Um, we have been doing a series since the first of the year called The Story, where we are going through a, uh, like a Reader's Digest version almost of, of the scriptures, and it breaks down, the, it concentrates more on the chronological story than the books of the Bible. And so today we're going to be looking at um, the greatest story ever told and put the next one up there, please, so we can kind of announce the title of it. We're going to be looking at this idea of the kingdom that's been divided. And uh, so this is the official title, A Kingdom Torn in Two. It's the chapter 14 in the story book that you have. It covers... Uh, 12 through 16 chapters of 1 Kings. And, I, and since it's on division, um, the Lord impressed upon me to speak about unity. Um, and uh, rather than looking at division, we all know what division looks like. We've had plenty of experience with it. So we're going to talk about yours, mine, and ours with the idea of coming together uh, in unity. Um, by the way, Chris mentioned taking notes and stuff. I do have copies of my outline uh, that I'll make available to you at the end of the service. I'm not going to give them ahead, ahead of time because then you sit there and read the notes instead of listening. <coughs> See, I know. We have a, a great opportunity here to be going through the scriptures like this. I, I don't know that I've ever been in a church where we methodically, deliberately, step through the scriptures in the way that we are doing uh, here this year. And so this is a great opportunity for, for all of us to, some of us to review things that we've read before, and hopefully all of us to look at them in a more meaningful way, in a way that is more practical and applicable to how we live on a day-to-day -day basis. So we're going to show this short video uh, that we've been showing every week, not the same video, but the same type of video with the same artist. And uh, he kind of gives an, an overview of what we're going to cover. He does in three minutes what it's going to take me, I don't know. Father God, I thank you for this privilege and opportunity to share your word with your people. I pray for the quickening of your Holy Spirit. I pray that you would order my thoughts and my words according to your purpose. Give us all ears to hear what your spirit is saying to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The... Uh, the kingdom divided here is kind of a difficult thing. I mean, you saw all the different characters that were mentioned just in that little three-minute video. So that's kind of like, you know, giving this many chapters and this many stories to a preacher is like saying, okay, here's a 16-ounce porterhouse. You can have one bite. <laughs> so, uh, so I looked at it and, and was praying about it, and the Lord seemed to be directing me not to try to, to bite off more than I could chew, hopefully, but to instead focus on the idea of unity. Because one of the enemy's most effective tactics, unfortunately, is division. Um, you know, the old uh, phrase, divide and conquer. And he's found that to work quite well in the church. Um, there are different opinions about how many denominations there are in the uh, Christian faith. But there's thousands at least, we can say that safely. 
So the enemy has been fairly successful in dividing us. Just think if all those thousands of denominations would come together with one purpose. What impact could we have on our world? And so when we look at this, we, we see a, a pattern that we can look at from the Old Testament here in Kings and hopefully learn some lessons from it that will impact the way we interact with each other here uh, at this time. So when we look at these uh, best laid plans, we notice that, you remember back when we studied about the, the first King Saul, Israel demanded almost of God that they have a king like all the other nations. And so he gave them Saul. But Saul, unfortunately, contributed to the division that Israel was to see by following his own selfish idea of God. That was his God. And so he kind of created God in his image to fit what he wanted to do. He leaned on God when it was convenient for him and when it was expedient for him. But then when the things came apart or when he had the opportunity to elevate himself, he did, over what God had said. And I fear that some of that same element is in our society today as well. David, his successor, also contributed to the division by ignoring the one true God when it suited him and his selfish desires. You notice with Bathsheba, he knew what he was doing was wrong. He absolutely knew what he was doing was wrong. And when the prophet confronted him and said, thou art the man, he immediately crumbled because he was already convicted. He knew he'd done wrong. And there were other occasions when David would do things that God had already convicted him of and told him, don't do that. And so he contributed to the division with his selfish desires. His son, well, David had a lot of issues because of what he had done with Bathsheba. This kind of, it's a trickle-down effect, you know, only it gets a lot broader. And when David married all these women and had, had, had these different violations of God's law, he passed it on to his inheritance. There was a uh, kind of a war of secession to his throne. And Solomon is the one that God finally appointed and cleared the way to, to become the king. But Solomon himself also contributed to the division that we're going to talk about today. When he was led into the deception of idolatry and false gods by his own selfish desire. Do you see a theme here? That, that maybe, just maybe selfishness is part of division. It's kind of the root of division. So we see this kingdom torn in two, and Solomon, when he dies, which is what the little video just covered, we see that the best laid plans of Israel to have a king led to division. Because this is not what God wanted for them. This is what they wanted for themselves. There's a lesson for us to learn there. Maybe we should actually listen to what God says and what God wants for us instead of putting our little foot down and stomping and saying, no, I, I want my way anyway. So when it comes to Rehoboam and Jeroboam, don't you love these names that rhyme and sound alike? So helpful when you're trying to remember who goes where. Rehoboam and Jeroboam, Rehoboam was the son of Solomon. Jeroboam was a guy that was uh, big in Solomon's uh, army or his, his uh, what do you call it, administration, I guess you could say. 
And uh, he, Solomon knew that he wanted the, the throne, and so he, sent him, he went away to Egypt for a while. And then after Solomon died, he came back and tried to, to uh, supplant Rehoboam. But these two guys, Rehoboam and Jeroboam, also divided the kingdom through a selfish desire for wealth, a selfish desire for popularity, and a selfish desire for power. Does any of that sound familiar? Is any of these things still going on today? <laughs> yeah, it does. So human nature has not changed. Man's fallen sinful nature has not changed. We may have invented uh, different ways to go about it, but in the end, it's like Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun. It's still the same old fallen nature that we've all been dealing with for all these years. I have a map up here to show you, I hope, um, that will give us the idea of where these divisions were. Rehoboam was in the south, the uh, gold part down here. That was the two tribes, the kingdom of Judah, and uh, Benjamin went along with him. Remember, there's ten tribes in the north, two tribes in the south. So uh, Rehoboam and, Judah, uh, and uh, Benjamin were in the south with Judah, in the north were the other ten tribes with Jeroboam, the blue part up there. You see right in the middle of that is Samaria. This is the root of some of the ancient hatred that the Jews had for Samaritans. Because remember in the, in the little video that we watched, it said that Jeroboam went up there and created his own gods, made golden calves, hearkening back to Aaron, and had them worship them because he was afraid that if they went back to Jerusalem for the Jewish feast, they might stay. So for his own selfish desires and motivations, he introduced idolatry to, or reintroduced, I should say, idolatry to his people rather than risk losing them to the one true God. He made himself more important than God. Unfortunately, there are some today that still do that. They are more interested in building their own kingdom than working in the kingdom of God. And some of that is the root of why we have so many denominations. There are different gods, if you will. There's your God and my God and our God. There are man-made gods. These man-made gods are gods of convenience and desire that are made in our image for our purpose. We create God in our image because the true God doesn't fit what we want to do. And so we create God and we kind of rearrange about him what doesn't fit our predetermined understanding of what God is or he violates something that we really want. And so we create God, we man-make God. Then there are false gods. The gods that we talked about here that Jeroboam created up in the north to keep his people from going south. False gods are gods of deception, gods of untruth, gods who misrepresent and appeal to our own selfishness. The enemy has very active representations of these gods in our society today. People who really don't know the truth because they really haven't studied the word 
for themselves, which is important. If you don't know what the Word of God says, which is the truth, here's the standard right here. This is the standard. And if you don't know what the book says, you might tend to believe what somebody says when they mix a little bit of what this says and a little bit of what you want to hear. And that's what's happened a lot of times, and that's what's happened of why we have so many denominations in our world today. These false gods of deception, of untruth, of misrepresentation that appeal to our own selfish nature. So we go to the place where we hear what we want to hear instead of what we need to hear. We go to the place that scratches our ears instead of confronts our sin. And so we need to be careful about the gods that we choose. The third one is the one true God. The one true God is biblically defined, and everything about him is focused on him alone. When we find the one true God in the scriptures, everything goes to him. It's not about us. It's about him. It's never about humankind. It's about him. His nature, his love, his greatness, and we're going to get into this a little bit later when we talk more about who God is and who the one true God is, but it's, it's about him. And because it's about him, it's about us. But it goes through him first. If we don't have an understanding of him and who he is, we will never understand who we are and how we fit into his kingdom. And that's what this message is about today, hopefully. That we can focus on an idea that God is God regardless and, ha and the clearest and best and only real genuine picture of him is right here. And that's, I'm going to be giving you a lot of references today. I won't necessarily read all of those scriptures to you, but I'm going to give you some references on the screen that you probably need to jot down so that you can refer back to them. And guess what? It's not, a, not an exhaustive list. I'm going to give you enough hopefully, to whet your appetite to go and dig for yourself. This is not a drive-through deal, you know, where I'm going to spoon-feed you and all that. No. I'm going to give you enough to whet your appetite, and if you believe in God and you want more of God, if you want to serve God in a true and right way, then you will go back and the Holy Spirit will guide you, and starting with the root of what I give you with the Scriptures, you're going to find that there's a whole lot more in there about what we can learn about God. So we have these man-made gods, these false gods, and the one true God. Then under that, even under the one true God, we have your God, which is a perception or interpretation of God that I don't follow. See, he's your God, not mine. And so he's your perception of God, he's your interpretation of God, I don't necessarily follow him. Again, another way the enemy has divided the body of Christ. This idea comes in at least one place in 1 Kings chapter three, uh, 13, verse 6. I'll read this one to you because it's short. The king, Jeroboam, said to the man of God, Please entreat the Lord your God and pray for me and my hand that it may be restored to me. Where's the focus? 
Me. Your God and me. You go to your God and do what I need him to do for me. And that's where this idea of kind of like a professional clergy comes in. People hire a pastor and expect him to do it. It's your God, pastor. Your God, pastor. You pray for me to, to be healed. You pray for me for financial stability. You pray... Hmm. Your God. Your God. Then there's my God. My God has a personal perception of who I think God is. It's my personal interpretation of who God is. So this becomes then a very subjective viewpoint of God. So you have the point of view from the professional clergy, your God. Then you have the point of view from the, the person who really doesn't know that much about God, but he has a perception of it. If you don't believe it, look on social media sometime. There's a lot of different opinions of what God can do and who God is and how you can manipulate God. If you post this and you know, share it this way, then God's going to do this. Oh, come on. Then there's our God. Our God is a mutually agreed upon perception. It's a mutually agreed upon interpretation of God. It's kind of like an I'm okay, you're okay. See? If, and this, again, supports the denominational splits. I'll agree with Mark as long as he agrees with me on who God is. And if we don't agree, then, then he'll find another church or I'll find another church where we can't agree with somebody. And then we divide. This is the strategy of the enemy today. The strategy of division has not been set aside. The strategy of division has not been minimized. It is alive and well and active in the church today. And hopefully what the purpose of giving you this information is to bring back to awareness that what this is going on. Because the, the, the main thing is complacency or acceptance of the norm. As long as we are complacent and accept what's going on, nothing's going to change. Those of you that have worked 12-step programs and in recovery, what's the first thing? Is to become aware, right, that there is an issue, there's a problem. So today, this information I'm giving you is to raise awareness. There is an issue, there's a problem, and it's something that each one of us as believers in Jesus Christ can unite together to address and defeat by the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the goal. A lofty goal, perhaps, but at least to get the challenge out there to us. So, let's look at some lessons that we learn from this kingdom divided. Unity and division today continue to be options. Unity and divisions continue to be options. We have these choices to make. Spiritually, unity and division, we can unite biblically, theologically, and doctrinally. And those are probably scary words for some of us. Biblically, theologically, and doctrinally. 
affects our spiritual unity. But if we don't know what the Bible says, if we don't know what the Bible teaches about who God is, what his attributes are, his nature, his character, then how can we agree on what we do not understand or know? So it's important that we have a biblical, theological, doctrinal unity for our spiritual unity. Otherwise, it will become division. You know, it also works, though, in relationships. Relationally, there can be unity or division about our concept of what marriage is, about our concept of what family is, and about our concept of what church is. These are issues that will unite us or divide us. Are we going to allow society to tell us what marriage is? Or are we going to look to this book and let this book tell us what God who implemented the institution of marriage says it is? You might have to violate political correctness to do that. I'm okay with that. But it comes with a cost sometimes. Marriage and family, family today has been redefined. I, I, that's a rabbit trail that I'm, <laughs> I'm going to try to stay off of. But trust me when, you, when I tell you the, the scriptural definition and picture of what family is, is a far cry from what we see in some of our places here in, in America and across the world in societal definition of family. And also the church. There are very many definitions of what the church is. There's, you know, well, all the denominations, all the different sects and, and things like that that are out there are all different definitions that we have come up with about what church is. The scriptural definition of what the church is is the body of Christ. And so we have to remember that the body of Christ is one body. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. The unity in the body of Christ can only be maintained as we look to Jesus Christ alone. No preacher is going to save me. No doctrine is going to save me. No church is going to save me. Being a member of a particular organization isn't going to save me. Getting wet isn't going to save me. It's focused on Jesus Christ alone. Looking to him alone. And as we do that, we submit to him as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So it's not only looking, that's the first step, is to realize Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer. There is no other answer. Man has tried to invent all kinds of other pathways and call it the answer, but Jesus is the only answer. And the real part of that answer is that Jesus is Lord. Some of us want Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord. We want him to save us from hell. We want him to forgive us our sins so we feel better but we really don't want him to rule in our lives. That kind of goes back to that original thing with Israel wanting a king. 
They wanted their own king so they could be like everybody else instead of having God rule over them directly. Remember, even at the foot of Mount Sinai, they didn't want anything to do with Moses. They didn't want anything to do with God speaking directly to them. They said, Moses, you go talk to him and then tell us what he said. We don't want to talk to God directly. That's scary. And some folks still live their lives that way today. Let me tell you, God is a God of love and acceptance. God is a God who wants to be in a relationship with you. That's why he sent Jesus in the first place. Not only must we look to Jesus alone and submit to his lordship, but we also must establish and maintain a living relationship with the one true God through Jesus Christ, the Savior. So again, Lord and Savior, they have to go together. Just taking Jesus as a Savior isn't going to work unless you also make him Lord. I had a Sunday school teacher a long time ago used to tell me that if he is not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. So now, let's kind of, I know this might be scary, but we're going to dip a toe into theology. Hopefully it's practical theology. Something that we can live with and live out on a day-to-day basis. Let's talk about this one true God. There's man-made gods, false gods, and the one true God. Let's come back to the, false, to the one true God and focus in on him. A biblically defined God. We're going to go through this list kind of quickly, but the the scriptures are there for you to, to write down and look up later, and I would encourage you to do that. The first thing about our God that I want to talk about is sovereignty. One of the most important attributes of God is that He is sovereign. What does that mean? He's always in control. Isaiah 46.10. Okay, I'll read this one to you because it's too good to pass up. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not yet been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Our God is a sovereign God and he is always in control. We need to remember that about God so that we understand when chaos happens in our lives, who's still in control? Does it say there that we ever are in control? No. That's where the chaos comes in. And so we have to come back to this understanding of who God is. He's sovereign. And in the midst of the chaos, when everything I had planned suddenly gets flushed, and you hear that swirling noise, and you're left there standing, what happened? Who's in control? God is. God is in control. There's a whole, I mean, you could preach a series of messages on the sovereignty of God, but I've got to move on. The next thing about our God is he's immutable. Now, these are some fancy words, but I'm going to try to break them down to you. 
Immutable means always the same. Simple. He's always in control. He's sovereign. And he's always the same. He's immutable. He does not change. That is from uh, Malachi 3.6. And, and that's, again, the idea is, I am the Lord, I change not. Always the same. If you have a bad day, and you come home, and the toilet has leaked all day in your, in your house, and now you have water on the floor, does that change who God is? If you get mad at God and stomp your little foot and kind of shake your fist in his, in his face and say, God, I'm mad at you, does that change who he is? No. It changes who we are. But it doesn't change him. He's immutable. I am the Lord. And there's something good about that. You know, Hebrews says Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. There is a comfort in the consistency of God. There is a comfort in the consistency of God. We know that no matter what kind of circumstances or situation we find ourselves in, whether it be in a relationship, in circumstances at the job, or circumstances at home, finances, or whatever, health, whatever it might be, God has never changed. God has never changed. The next fancy word that we're going to look at in our theological treatise today, is God is eminent. Isn't that a fun word? Not imminent, but eminent. Okay, with the A in there. What does that fancy word mean? Well, he's always near. Always near. Colossians 1.17, he's before all things, and in him all things are hold, held together. Psalm 139 there's a whole passage there, seven uh, and following, where, where can I flee from you, Lord? If I go to heaven, you're there. And then he goes through all these different places. You're there. Even there in the remotest part of the sea, you're there. Wherever we go, God is. And he's imminent. He's right near us. So you don't have to call upon God and beat your chest like those, you know, the, the ones that challenged the prophets that were dancing and yelling and screaming and cutting themselves and trying to get their God's attention, our God is near. He's right here with us. God is always with us. If you feel distance from God, it's not because he's not there, it's because you put a barrier between you and him. But he's still waiting right where you left him. The next word that we need to cover is God is transcendent. Transcendent means always above and beyond. Always above and beyond. So God doesn't get bogged down in stuff that's happening here. He is near, but he's always above and beyond. Isn't that cool? So he doesn't get, you know, we, like Peter in walking on the, on the sea, we get caught up in circumstances. We look at waves and stuff and we say, oh man, I'm sinking. But God is always in control, above and beyond, and near us. He's right there. So that when we say Jesus, 
immediately. He's there. He's there. The transcendence of God. Isaiah 55 and verse 8. God wants to let us know, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. The heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, my thoughts than your thoughts. Don't try to figure him out. He's above us. Don't try to nail him down and say, well, he did this the last time, so he's going to do this again. There's no magic formula prayers that work on God. Some people like to do that, you know. They start a prayer a certain way and they end a prayer a certain way and they say, say these ma magic words in between like some kind of incantation and they expect to put God on a chain and make him do what we want him to do. God is above all of that. Thank God for that. And so when we put this idea of eminence that we just talked about with the idea of transcendence that we've talked about, we get this idea of omnipresence, okay? So, eminence plus transcendence equals omnipresence. You follow that? We'll get there in a minute. Somehow I got those out of order on my slide, but it's okay. The next one is infallible. Infallible means always perfect. He is incapable of being wrong or making a mistake. He never fails. We sang about it this morning. Your love never fails, never gives up, right? Our God is incapable of being wrong or making mistakes, even though a lot of times we think he has, don't we? But God, I prayed, and you, had, you, know, you really had to do this. No. Remember the first one? Sovereign. Sovereign. got to put all these things together to begin to scratch the surface of an understanding of who our God is. Then we come to these omnis. Omnipresent, which we just talked about a little bit. Always present, everywhere at the same time. So that's that transcendence and eminence together. He's always present everywhere and at the same time. Jeremiah 23, 24 can't hide from God. The next one is omniscient. Omniscient means all-knowing, always knowing all things. All-knowing, he's aware of our past, he's aware of our present, he's aware of our future. Nothing takes him by surprise. He has total and complete knowledge. I used to kind of find it amusing when inmates would come to me. I was a federal prison chaplain for 20 years. Inmates would come to me and say, Chap, they, they found my stash, you know. I said, yeah, well, you know, that's, that's what officers do. They, they kind of go through there and try to find stash and stuff that you're not supposed to have. And uh, they said, but I thought I had it really hidden. Not really. So... It's kind of like that with God sometimes, you know. We think we have stuff stashed away that he doesn't know about. We think we have stuff that we can sweep under that magic rug or put in that mystical closet that he won't get to. But if he knows the end from the beginning and he knows all things in between and he is all-knowing, then guess what? He knew where the closet was before you ever built it. 
He knew the full inventory of that closet before you had put the first item in there. It's always amazing to think that we as human beings think that we can surprise God. Look what I found, God. Yes, child, I know. It's there. Has been there. Will be there. Thank you for acknowledging its existence. Because that's really what it is. It's not surprising God. When we confess to Him, you know, we've talked about this word confession. It means saying the same thing on the legal. Same words. It's agreeing with God. Coming into agreement with God on what we are like. That's what confession is. And so when we confess to God and say, look God, I found this in my life. He said, yeah. I've known about that for, since it's been there. So we're not surprising God. What we are doing is coming into agreement with what he already knows. And that's the beginning of healing. That's the beginning of forgiveness. That's the beginning of recovery. We'll get off of omniscience. The next one is, and the last one in this list, all, again, not an exhaustive list by any means. Characteristics, attributes, or scriptural. Not exhaustive. There's a whole bunch more stuff in the scriptures. But let's look at omnipotent. Always all-powerful. Always all-powerful. Let me read you this little quote I found. Since power is said in reference to possible things, the phrase that Jesus uses in Matthew 19.26, that God, with God all things are possible, the phrase God can do all things or all things are possible with God is rightly understood to mean that God can do all things that are possible as well as the impossible. For the, this reason, he is said to be omnipotent. So God can do anything that we can imagine or think. And even those things that we think are beyond, he can still do that. God is the God of the impossible. What seems impossible to us, he can do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. And most of the times, we sell God short when we ask him for things. If we ask, James tells us that we don't get what we ask for sometimes because we're not asking for the right stuff. Okay, so this is a small list, a very short list, very short scriptural reference list of some of the attributes of God that are found in the Bible. I would encourage you to make this the basis of a study so that you, because guess what? There's a whole lot more about God that we can discover that's right there in that book that we have in our hands or on our devices or whatever. It's there. It's there to go as deep as we want to go, as deep as we trust God to lead us. All those things lead us to the beginning of an understanding of who God is. This is the Tetragrammaton. Well, it was. There it is. This is the, the Jewish word for God. Okay. It's read right to left, so you've got to start there. It starts with a little hooky thing over there, which is our letter Y, and then the little archway-looking thing that's an H, and then the little squiggly thing that's a, a V or a W, they overlap, and then the final H. So this is his, his name. 
Now we've attached English letters to it, Y-H-W-H. But when we call, when we pronounce words, we don't usually say the letters. We don't say A, B, C, D. So when we're spelling boy, we don't say B, B, O, Y. We say boy. So it's the same thing with this word. The, one of the reasons that this name of God is called unpronounceable is the letters that it's written with. And you notice that there's no vowels, right? There's no vowels. It's just the letters. But they're all breaths. So it's What does that sound like? Somebody breathing. Who is our God? He is the very breath of life. Our God is the God that breathes into us His life. He wants us to know Him. He wants us to be intimate with Him so that our breath and His breath are that one. And we breathe with Him. And we know that He is the true and the living God, the author of life. When we talk about unity, I think we can talk about the idea that unity originates in the Trinity. Division originates in selfishness. Unity originates in the Trinity. Division originates in selfishness. Do we have another diagram? Yeah. Okay. No one has ever yet successfully explained the Trinity. Not going to try it today. But I brought this cute little diagram. <laughs> you know, kind of something that we can wrap our heads around because we're never going to wrap our heads around the Trinity. Some things have to be by faith. By faith. <laughs> so when we look at this little triangular circle thing, if you ever want to see the Trinity in Scripture, First Peter chapter 1, Verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ. There's the three in one passage. There's also the idea in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 4, this is one body, one spirit, just as also you are called into one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. I mean, we could spend a few weeks on just that. I would encourage you to, to read this little, these two little passages right here and meditate on it and be open to what the Holy Spirit wants to teach you about it. The more, it's, you know what meditation is, right? You break it down. You, you, you begin to look at, what does it mean? God the Father, the foreknowledge of God the Father. What does that mean? The sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. What is that? To the obedience of Jesus Christ. What is that about? And then look at, what does it mean? One body, one spirit. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one hope. What do those things really mean? And allow the Holy Spirit to begin to lead you and direct you and teach you and just take you deeper. As deep as you, it, it might get scary, that's okay. That's what walking by faith is about. You step out on the, on the waves and allow the Spirit of God to lead you.
We are united by our singular, biblically-based belief in the one true God. That's unity. We believe there is one God, one true God, and that unites us together. A biblically-based, and I've just given you a couple of scriptures, a biblically-based belief in the one true God. We are also united by our singular, biblically-based focus on our relationship with the one true God through his Son, Jesus Christ. Thirdly, we are united by our singular, biblically-based priority of seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. These are all counteractions to division. So when you look at these three things, we are united in belief, united in focus, united in priority, biblically-based unification. When we go outside of these things, we risk being in some kind of false religion, some kind of sectarian something that's, that's really crazy out there. These are the things that should unite us as Christians, unite us as the body of Christ. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. The one true God. We believe that there is one true God, our faith. We focus on that relationship with Jesus Christ. Not on who has the most toys, but on Jesus. Not who has the nicest building, but who's Jesus. Not on who has the most people in the pew, but Jesus. We are united by making it a priority to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. That little scripture, you know, that's kind of one of those canned things that people quote a lot, but we don't take the time to look at it. A priority of seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. Priorities are a funny thing in our society today. They change moment by moment depending on what appeals to us. Where your desires are will become your priority. Where your desires are will become your priority. So whatever we want most will become the thing we seek first. That's what Jesus was talking about here. Seek first His kingdom, His righteousness. All that other stuff will take care of itself. But as Americans, it seems, and, and generally in the world today, it seems we have a lot of other priorities ahead of that. The kingdom of God and His righteousness only comes in when we're in trouble and we need a bailout. The kingdom of God and His priorities, His righteousness, only becomes a priority when it's us in the clinch, in the vice, in the hole, in the trap, in a place David talked about in, in uh, Psalm 40, he fell into the pit. It was a slimy, miry pit that he couldn't get out of. But he kept calling on God, and God eventually reached down there, grabbed him, picked him up out of that, set him on a rock, not on the edge where he could slip back in, but on the rock. Who's the rock? Jesus. Jesus. There's no room for selfish interpretation. There's no room for selfish focus. There's no room for selfish motivation if we are going to maintain the unity of the body of Christ. Division originates in selfishness 
We are sometimes divided by our own selfish attitudes. And we're going to go through this list again fairly quickly because I know we have time constraints. We are divided by our selfish attitudes of jealousy, covetousness, and envy. And those three things usually run together. We are divided by our own attitudes of boasting and bragging and self-focus. We are divided by our attitudes of wanting to quarrel and gossip and rumor monger. You know, rumor mongering, a fishmonger, a fishmonger is one who sells and loves fish. A rumor monger is one who sells and loves rumors. Oh, Facebook, where art thou? Huh? Um, but the idea here is, you know, this is the idea of church members talking about one another instead of to one another. So we need to guard our hearts against these things. Another way that we divide ourselves is self-serving motivations and cloaked actions. It may look good to the surface, you know, oh, I'm doing this wonderful thing. And usually if we're in that first category, uh, the second category of boasting and bragging, we want everybody to know, oh, look what good thing I'm doing. But we have an ulterior motive about promoting ourselves or getting an edge over somebody else, or lots of other things. Cloaked actions are when we have what they call cliques in the church, or small groups in the church that are there to promote their own agenda, and not to promote the church. Thank God these things I don't observe in our, in our fellowship here. But these are warning signs to keep us from straying into that territory to make sure that we're aware. Awareness puts us on the guard. The next one is lack of prayer and lack of his presence. Those things go together. When we don't pray and talk to him on a regular basis, we will not sense his presence. Some people in this very sanctuary can come on a Sunday morning and sit through an entire service and just say, man, God's presence was there so real, so rich. I just felt him right there with me. And the praise which is full of his presence. And sitting right next to them could be somebody who said, hmm, you know, what was the big deal? I didn't, you know. Lack of prayer, lack of his presence. Final one in this grouping is a critical or unteachable spirit. People that think that they know better than everybody else People that want to attack others so that they can stand on them and feel a little bit higher. All of these things stem from an inflated view of our own importance. All of these things are unscriptural attitudes. These sorts of attitudes are all too common in fallen humanity. They infect our world and sadly sometimes the church too. So those famous words of every preacher in conclusion, four things that I want you to take away from this today to kind of hopefully tie it together for you. Yours, mine, and ours. Here's the conclusion. You don't need to compete for what God says is yours. You don't need to compete for what God says is yours. It's safe. It's yours. God said it was. 
His word will not be uh, invalidated. His word will not be violated. In fact, the scripture tells us that his word accomplishes whatever it is sent out to do. It never comes back empty-handed. Secondly, I don't need to be covetousness of what God says is yours. I don't need to be covetous of what God says is yours. It's okay for others to be blessed. I don't have to be jealous of that. I don't have to be covetous of that. The third one, you don't need to be jealous of what God says is mine. I don't need to covet, you know, you don't need to covet what God says is mine, uh, of, of yours, and I don't need to co- uh, be jealous of what God says is mine. Or you don't need to be jealous. This, this thing is, is fairly simple if we look at these. It will keep us from being sucked in to the enemy's strategy of division. The final one is we don't need to be envious of what God says is ours. If God has declared it in his word and says, this is for my children, there's no reason to be envious of that. There's no reason to be jealous of that. There's no reason to get in arguments over that. If God says it's ours, it's ours. It's like those proverbial gifts on the shelf, you know. The gift is sitting there. It's got your name on it. It's yours. It's ours. It has whosoever will on it. The greatest gift of that is salvation. Because the word of God says, whosoever will may come. Whosoever will may come. And there's no reason for me to be covetous of that. Say, no, no, you can't be saved. You've done this and this and this. That's the unpardonable sin. No. No, that's not my place. God says, whosoever will, it means every one of us. Equal opportunity. I want to read this final scripture for you, and then this is it. Trust me. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Paul writes, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if there is any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the, here's unity, same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. If we could just live those things, it would revolutionize the church. Verse 3, do nothing from selfish or empty conceit. There we are back to that selfishness again. Guard against selfishness because it is our fallen human nature to be selfish. Me, 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 me first. You ever seen Joyce Meyer do her robot, what about me, what about me, what about me? That's the way we we think a lot of times. Paul says, no, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. Man, would that revolutionize the way we cooperate and work with one another? Regard one another as more important than yourself. Chris is more important than me. Philip is more important than me. Right? Because in God's kingdom, we are all important. If I focus on blessing and trying to help and love those people that he has put me with, 
God takes care of what I need. Seek His kingdom first and His righteousness. All this other stuff will be added. Finally, in verse 4, he says, Don't merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Again, against the selfishness of the flesh, into the selflessness of God and His love. This morning, I want to give us an opportunity to pray about what we have heard and learned, hopefully, to uh, begin to make this a starting point or an enforcement of continuation of what God has already started in you. To begin to focus on others instead of self. To begin to know and learn more about who God is, the one true God. Instead of trying to recreate God in our image, my God, your God, our God. Instead of looking to the one true God, and the Bible is the place to find Him. May we pray? Lord, I ask that the Holy Spirit now move among us, speak to hearts and lives. Perhaps we've heard truth echoed in these words today that has impacted us and caused us to look in a mirror and see ourselves in the mirror of your word. I pray now as we have this time of worship and prayer that you would do your work in hearts and lives, that you would allow us to participate and become who you created us to be. In Jesus' name.